0: Well, let's turn to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. While we are continuing to hear from the Lord about Israel's failures and disobedience, and rebellion against the Lord we, we are going to find in this particular chapter a a, a tonal change there's there's a, a change in the in, in the sense of what God is saying now to Israel in the way that he says it not that he's changing his way about the things that Israel is going to have to uh deal with, with the consequences of their sin God will deal with them as he has said but now he, he, he adds an, a, another level of, of, of his own personal desire for his people to come to him and to trust in him after all of this And it begins with this statement, and we know it's the prophet Hosea, but he's he's speaking the words of God. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he speaks God's words to Israel. And God says, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed unto Baalim and burned incense to graven images. I taught Ephraim also to go, taking them by their arms, but they knew not that I healed them. I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of of love. And I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws and I laid meat unto them. He shall not return into the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refuse to return. And the sword shall abide on his cities and shall consume his branches and devour them because of their own counsels. And my people are bent to backsliding from me. Though they call them to the Most High, none at all would exalt him. So if there are two things this chapter of Hosea focuses upon, they would be love and remembrance. Love and remembrance. What the previous chapters have emphasized in dealing with Israel's sins... And the Lord's abhorrence of them only leads to the revealing of the true nature of God's character toward his people here. This chapter reminds us that love, God's love in particular, is the greatest force this world has ever known. Now for some, wealth and power are greater forces. We see what wealth can do to people. It certainly can help people, but it can also hurt a lot of people who desire it and desire it over a lot of other things. And power, whether political or military or otherwise, we've seen what it can do. And yet, these things, wealth and power, could never match the magnitude and the intensity of the love of God. A person who truly loves another individual expresses total commitment, attachment, devotion and involvement with the person that is loved. The one who truly loves or the one who loves truly and faithfully gives their total allegiance to the person who is the object of their affection and treats their beloved with tenderness and with compassion and with forgiveness. And all of those traits up to this point are traits that God has himself extended toward Israel. All of them. This is how he has loved them. I'm not talking about some malty-schmaltzy love, you know, like the romantic kind of stuff that you hear nowadays. I think we should be very careful about that kind of expressions of love even in the church. Because God is high above That, For us to to truly understand the the love of God, we have to go beyond all all of what we see on, on HBO or Showtime or YouTube or Netflix or whatever else they call these ways of seeing things. No, God is one who is loved with total commitment, total attachment and devotion and involvement. He's one who's loved faithfully and truly with total allegiance to his people. And he's loved them with tenderness, compassion, and forgiveness. Now understand that God does not despise Israel as some people may think. Because he would not be true to his word if he did. He does not despise them. Now that doesn't mean that he doesn't doesn't despise what they do. That he doesn't abhor the sin that they do. But consider two passages, if you will, in Leviticus chapter 26 for a greater understanding of where we're going in the next two chapters, actually the next four chapters, 11, 12, 13, and 14, which is the rest of the book. But let's consider two passages in Leviticus 26 that deal with what would happen when when they, the children of Israel, would fall into idolatry. Because that is certainly the whole issue here with the northern kingdom of Israel. They didn't just sneak into idolatry, they began in idolatry. It was all about idolatry when they went to the north and established their own places of worship. They wouldn't worship in Jerusalem. They worshipped in Bethel, they worshipped in Dan, and they worshipped golden calves. So in Leviticus chapter 26... Before all of this took place, in Leviticus 26, verse 30, notice this one verse. I mean, there's a lot being said here about what would happen when they would go to idolatry, when they would begin to worship idols. This is what God says in, a, in, in one st- sentence. He says, I will, uh, I will destroy your high places, cut down your images, and cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. And what he's saying is, my soul shall ga'al, which is the Hebrew word for abhor or to loathe or to cast away and reject you. Now that is, that is strong language toward the people that God says he loves. But he's abhorring the sin. He's abhorring the things that they've done. Even to the point of saying, I'm going to cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols what you were becoming dependent upon, what you were wanting to do in, in, in worshiping other gods, you're gonna fall upon them. And if I'm gonna destroy them, I'm gonna destroy you. But then in a, a few verses later, in verses 40 to 46, same chapter, if they shall confess their iniquity, and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass, which they trespassed against me, and that also they have walked contrary unto me, and that I also have walked contrary unto them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled. I want you to remember something. These were Jews who were circumcised physically, but God knew their hearts better, and while the circumcision of the flesh was a sign of their circumcised heart, they were far from having—I uh, should say—circumcised hearts. They were uncircumcised in their hearts, which tells us that if all we do is go after the ritual or the celebration or the or the ceremony or or the tradition, rather than look at things from the standpoint of knowing God personally and intimately, we're not going to get anywhere. So he says, if then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity, then will I remember, and I want you to notice how many times God says the word remember, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, And also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember. And I will remember the land, the land that was promised to them. The land also shall be left of them, and and shall enjoy her Sabbaths, while she lieth desolate without them. Which means, of course, that the land will finally get the rest that they uh, were told to give the land, which they never did. And when they're taken into captivity, as they would be with the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the land would get its rest. And they shall accept of the punishment of their iniquity because 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 even because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. And then he says this, look at verse 44. And yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away. Neither will I abhor them, to destroy them utterly, and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. I emphasize these two things. I will not cast them away. Even though they are in captivity, even though they are in that place of judgment, I will not cast them away. Neither will I abhor them. Neither will I loathe them, reject them, or cast them away. To destroy them utterly. To break my covenant with them. I won't do that. For I am the Lord their God. What is that saying about God? We know what all of this is saying about Israel. Because we've been there ourselves. But what does it say about God? This says that God is true to his word. This says that God is true to his promises. And God is true to his covenant with his people, Israel. Whereas a lot of people today, even in the church, have written Israel off as if God has forsaken them. He said, I don't care for them. Whatever they're doing over there in, in the land of Israel or the state of Israel is not my Israel they're sadly mistaken because God has a love for his people and anybody who falls into the error of replacement theology thinking that only the blessings that were given to Israel are now just for the church well if you're going to do that you better get the, you, you better get the curses as well better focus on those things too if you're going to replace Israel the church does not replace Israel in fact the church is to love Israel because God's not done with Israel then he goes on and he says but I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the heathen that I might be their God I am the Lord. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between him and the children of Israel in Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. It would have really been easy if they would just have obeyed. <laughs> if they would have just obeyed and followed the Lord and loved the Lord and accepted the love of the Lord. And every time the Lord would appear with them, they would humble themselves. I mean, I mean, isn't that ideal? Let me ask you a question, is that, wouldn't that be ideal in the church today, just to every day come and we become more and more perfect and more and more in love with Jesus and more and more, more, and more in love with each other and, and, and nobody would have any kind of conflicts whatsoever and then everything would be perfect and so nice and serene and stuff. Is that the way it is? Man, oh Man, read the New Testament, it wasn't even that way in the times of the Apostles. They were constantly telling the people they needed to turn and focus on the Lord and surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit and do the things that God had called us to do, which was to love, to honor, to forgive, and to restore. So how much are, how much are we like Israel sometimes? Let's I mean, let's Let's be honest. Sometimes we're a lot like Israel. So we have the Old Testament to always point us back, you know, to, to teach us, you know, the, the, that's what remembrance is all about. Remembering what God has done for his people, remembering how much God loves his people. So when the Lord tells us to do this one thing, and the one thing I'm talking about is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, that says, But speaking the truth in love. You can read the rest of the verse. Speaking the truth in love may grow up into him all, uh, in all things, which is the head even Christ. But it's that phrase, but speaking the truth in love. Let me ask you a question. Is that not what God does with his people every day? He speaks the truth in love. Sometimes the, 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 what he speaks is sometimes it's hard. But that's what a good father does. And he does so because he loves. I I might be getting ahead of myself, but that's okay. But that's what a father does. He speaks the truth in love, and that is what we've been seeing all along in the book of Hosea, and in all the prophets for that matter. God's speaking the truth in love, and that reflects the approach that the Lord always takes with His people. He speaks to them in love, here in our text in Hosea, the doors and the windows of God's unfailing love for Israel, and in fact, all of his creation is open for all to see. Don't forget that, that John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. And the world in, in, in the Greek is the word kosmos or cosmos. That means the, you know, that's all that he created. God so loved the world. And those in it, by the way. He didn't send his only begotten son to die, you know, for the whales and, you know, for hugging trees and all kinds of other stuff. That's not what I mean by the creation. I'm talking about the utmost creation on the sixth day. When God created man in his image. In his likeness, created he them. God so loved the world. And let's not forget that we were in the world when we came to Christ. And let's not forget that we're in the world now, but we're not of the world because we are in Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So here we see the doors and windows of God's unfailing love for Israel open for all to see. It's been seen throughout history. And it's going to continue until Jesus the Messiah rules and reigns on David's throne in the millennial kingdom. The thousand year reign of Christ. That love is going to continue for his people. Now as for remembering, the Lord would have us remember his mercies and he would have his people remember his mercies in the past simply to assure them success in their future that's the same thing for us that God has to assure us many times of his mercies in the past what he's already done for us to encourage us about our future and our future success what is the success what is success in life for the believer in Jesus Christ it's not possessions it, it's, it's not gain, as some would have you believe. You know, the success is, you know, well, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm victorious in Christ, you know, yeah, I came to the Lord, but it's all these things that I have. It's, it's not about things. The, the, the success in the Christian life has to do with obedience. It has to do with doing that which honors God and honors the name of Christ and honors the things that Christ has done. And here's the thing though, if you you don't remember the consequences of the past you will once again fail in reliving it. I mean this is a constant sub-theme in Hosea. The Lord has referred, in other words, to Let's say the book of Exodus and other portions of Israel's failed past. In the scriptures here, he's referred to them 15 times in the book of Hosea. 15 times he goes back and reminds them of their failures. So that they won't go that direction any longer. But again, as I said earlier, the tone in chapter eleven rings distinctively different than what we had heard before. Let's go back now to verse one, and let's let's go ahead and look at these verse seven verses. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Uh, that little phrase, out of Egypt, uh, we're going to talk about in just a moment, if I remember. I hope I remember. When the Lord speaks of his infinite love of Israel, he is in fact showing that it had its beginning when they were being formed into a nation through the fires of their Egyptian bondage and slavery. We can say without a doubt that Israel was born in Egypt. Egypt. Now, that is, there's, a, there's, a, there's a type in all of this, too. Because Israel born in Egypt means that Israel was born in the fires of the world. Because Egypt represents the world. It represents the ways of the world. It represents the religions of the world. It, it represents a lot of the worst things about the world. If we got down a little bit more deeper into the problems of Egypt of the time. And so from its earliest history, Israel was loved by their God. And he says that plainly here. I love them. I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. By the way, there isn't a place in the scriptures that the Lord has to explain his love for Israel. I would figure that some people want an explanation about it. Well, why did God love Israel so much and he didn't love you know Mexico the same way or Italy or whatever. God doesn't have to explain his love for Israel. And and the scriptures don't. It doesn't explain his love for Israel, it doesn't defend it or even apologize for it. His love is sovereign, his love is boundless, and as one writer said, he loves because he loves. Okay, class is over, as far as his love is concerned. He loves because he loves. In fact, that's what the scripture says. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. Think of of these words. The Lord did not set his love upon you. He's speaking directly to the children of Israel. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people for you were the fewest of all people And some people would say well then that's why he loved them because they were you know they were the fewest no don't add to what it says here just notice what he says I didn't set my love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people for you were the fewest you were, you were the fewest I, I didn't do it because you were, the, you were more in number but here it is here's the answer but because the Lord loved you That's it. Any more explanation needed? He loves because he loves. But because the Lord loved you and, oh, there's an and here, because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers. Hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. In other words, God made a covenant and God always keeps his covenant. And he said, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. All that being said, he's just still loved them because he loved them. And he chose them. He chose them for that purpose. To love them. And it was this very same love that motivated the Lord to set his people free from that Egyptian slavery, as verse 8 just said. And as our text implies, they are not only called child, when Israel was a child, then I loved him. No, they're not only called child, they're called my son also. Did you catch that? When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Now, if you go back to Exodus chapter 4 for just a moment. Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. Now, God is speaking to Moses, and God is telling Moses what he needs to go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he says in verse 22 to Moses, Thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, in other words, this is what Moses is to say to Pharaoh. And I say unto thee, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. So you don't let Israel go, which is my son, as a nation, my son. Then I will slay your son. But what this indicates is a covenant relationship that can never be dissolved. And folks, that is very serious. It is a covenant relationship that cannot be dissolved. To this very day, to this very time, to this very hour, Israel is beloved of God. And Paul tells us that as well. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 11, verse 28, those very same words. He says, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. He's talking about his own people, Israel. Even back then, they they were enemies of the cross. They they had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And that continued on with many people. Now, Now, remember this, that after Jesus... Uh, rose from the dead and some 50 days later when, when after the Lord had ascended into heaven and, he, and, and then he came to the upper room where, uh, on the day of Pentecost and, and the 120 were in that room and the Holy Spirit came upon them with tongues of, cloven tongues of fire and then of course uh, you know the, the wind of the Spirit came through and, and they began to speak in other tongues giving praise unto God and people were wondering what was going on the early church was made up of, of Jews who believed in Yeshua, believed in Jesus. So there, yet there were still a lot that didn't. A good majority, of course, didn't. So when Paul is talking about this, even in his time, some, some you know, 50 years later, as concerning the gospel, he says, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, God has elected them, God has called them, so as touching the election they are beloved for the father's sakes they are beloved that doesn't say that they were beloved or that they they were beloved and are not anymore no it says they are beloved they are beloved present tense and it carries on into as long as God wants to love them they're beloved now Turning to the New Testament, we're going to find a reference to verse 1 of Hosea, chapter 11, in Matthew's gospel. So I want to have you turn to Matthew uh, chapter 2. And this is important when that phrase, my son out of Egypt, is concerned. So in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, it says, And when they were departed... Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Let's get a let's get a, a picture of all of this that's going on, because you know we're almost to that season where we uh, talk a lot about the birth of Jesus Christ. So we want to make sure that we get some of these things right, because we want to tell people everything that needs to be said about Jesus. So it's it's speaking of those who uh, had uh, come from the east and all and were warned in the dream that they, they weren't to go to Herod or uh, return to Herod because Herod uh, wanted, to, of course, to kill uh, anyone that he thought was going to threaten his, his position. Because, by the way, you know what Herod was called? This, this Herod here was called the King of the Jews. So when they heard that these guys had come, you know, into the region because they were coming to worship the King of the Jews and it wasn't him that they were coming to worship, uh, you know, Herod was one, he, he killed his own sons, uh, and he killed a lot of people because he was, he was just uh, suspicious of everybody that he felt was going to take his place. In fact, somebody had written one time, you know, it was safer to be Herod's pig than it was his son's. So, you know, if you were a pig, you were safe, but if you were one of his sons who looked like you wanted to take his, his throne, uh, you, uh, goodbye. Anyway. Isn't that a wonderful history lesson there? So anyway, they they had left, and when they were departed, that's who it's talking about here in verse 13, "...behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt." And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken out of uh, spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, "Out of Egypt have I called my son." That's uh, Hosea chapter eleven verse one. And you say, "Well, what's the connection in all of this?" Uh, There's a simple connection in in this in the in that phrase, "My son," uh, and called my son out of Egypt. Because the reason why we can use this particular passage, because, you know, the question isn't as to whether Hosea was wrong or Matthew was wrong about this, because both of them were moved by the very same spirit to give, a, to give us an accurate re- record of events. Because both Hosea and Matthew call Israel and Jesus my son. Well, Hosea calls Israel my son, and Jesus uh, is called my son by Matthew. But then Matthew goes to that scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to say, this is a prophecy that was fulfilled. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Now, when you think about Israel coming out of Egypt, did they come out of Egypt because they were called out? Or did they come out of Egypt because they were delivered? They were delivered. And who delivered them? Moses. Moses was sent in to, to bring them out. Moses was sent in to deliver them. Now, they still came out, of course, but the word called and called my son out of Egypt fulfills this scripture because it says, out of Egypt have I called my son. He, he wasn't so much delivered as he was called out of Egypt. So there's a a, a, a little connection there that that. helps us to understand that both that speaking of Israel and speaking of of Jesus uh, is is, uh, is possible but the answer now for us in our study of Hosea is found in the brilliantly perfect way in which the Messiah Jesus identifies himself with his people so that his position is theirs my son And his relationship is theirs. For God to say, Israel is my son. So are they ever viewed together? Jesus and Israel? Oh, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 49. Let's turn to Isaiah 49. Verse 1. Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken ye people from far. The Lord hath called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me, and said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now the question is, why is the servant the messiah called Israel here because that this is a from from chapter 49 through chapter 53 is really a long passage that deals with the messiah of Israel the servant of God so it it can refer to the nation simply because the servant is to draw the see the servant is to draw the nation back to God. Just if you're in Isaiah 49, just go down to verses five and six and notice what it says there. Because the servant who is the Messiah is to draw the nation back to God. So how could it be talking about the nation and calling the nation Israel, my son? It's calling it's calling the Messiah Israel here. Because, and here's the reason, because he fulfills what the nation of Israel should have done, but didn't. He's fulfilling what Israel should have done. In his person and in his work, Jesus embodies and characterizes the nation of Israel. And as as I said, as you follow through the theme of the servant from Isaiah 49, it leads us to the ultimate characterization which is found in verse, I should say in chapter 53, the suffering servant. He was bruised for our transgressions. He suffered pain, you see, for their iniquity. The chastisement of their sins was upon him. By, their, by his stripes, the stripes of the Messiah, they're healed. Remember also the words of Jesus when he says, well, it's, it's about Jesus in John chapter one, where he says, he came unto his own and his own received him not. And, and Paul references the statement to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, but to the Jew first. First. And Jesus makes it very clear in his earthly ministry that he came for the lost sheep of Israel. Though he will in the, in the Gospel of Luke, which is a more universal gospel, including the Jews and the Gentiles. But in Matthew, he says, I've come to say the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Because that was initially, and that is initially, who Jesus continues to characterize as the suffering servant. So in this, the Messiah and Israel are inseparable, and they are bound eternally. By the way, where is Jesus going to set up his kingdom? (laughs) In Jerusalem. Not in Rome, not in Washington, not in Pacoima, California. He's going to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. I love to say, Pakoyma. I don't know why. And you would think that because of this relationship into which the Lord has brought Israel with Himself, that, that she would be all the more devoted and, and obedient to Him. Think again. Look at, look at verses 2 through 4 now of Hosea 11. As they call them, so they went from them. Now this is very important because we're going to have to ask the question, Who's them? Who is them? As they call them, or actually, as, as uh, I should say, who is they? Because they call them. Them is the children of Israel. As they call them, so they went from them. They sacrificed unto Baal, uh, Baalim, or, or the Baals, is, because uh, plural Baal the Baalim, and, and burned incense to graven images. Baalim, you know, I mean, you're, you're talking about Molech as well, and a few other gods that were in that category of, of these uh, deities of the Phoenicians that would become the deities of all of the, uh, of the nations that surrounded Israel. They burned incense to graven images, and that, that's saying that the children of Israel finally got into this thing about burning incense into these, uh, into these bales. I taught Ephraim also to go, which is Israel, don't forget, Uh, taking them by their arms. Now notice, notice the picture here. I taught Ephraim also to go, which means to move or to walk, taking them by their arms, but they knew not that I healed them. I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love. In other words, I loved them like a father would love his child or his children. And I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws. The one, the, the one that come and lifts the yoke off of them. The yoke of bondage, the yoke of slavery. I lifted them off and I fed them. And literally it says, I laid meat unto them, which means I bent down and gave them food. So the Lord not only brought them out of Egypt, but he also called them. He called them to obedience through his prophets. But the people rejected the messengers of God and and they turned instead to false gods, which included, as I said, the Baalim, the Baals. But literally, the prophet Jeremiah mentions these prophets and points out how far back it was that the Lord sent them to the people. Because we would think, well, it was in in, in in the days of the prophets... Whether it was going, to, going back maybe to the 900 B.C., it, it actually could have been even earlier because there were prophets in the, times of, in the time of David. But this goes even further back. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 23 through 28, it says, But this thing commanded I them, saying... Now God is speaking here. This thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people... And walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that, I, that it may be well unto you. But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and in the imagination of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. Folks, which way does God want us to go? He wants us to move forward. Forgetting what is behind, Paul said, and pressing forward, pressing on to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. To the prize. The prize is Jesus. And what they were doing was going backwards and not forwards. What is the backwards? You know what the backwards is? It's a word that you hear in the news nowadays a lot. Resistance. They were resisting God. That's called backsliding. God says, come this way with me. And they said, no, we want to go our own way. It's like, you know, a donkey, you know. They call it other things. But anyway, you got this thing around.
1: And they just, you know,
0: God's trying to pull them and they just keep backing up. Stubborn, walking in the councils and the imagination of their evil heart. And went backward and not forward since the day. Now here's here's the time frame. Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt. That was in the time of Joshua. Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day. I have even sent unto you all my servants the prophets. Daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they hearken not unto me nor inclined their ear, but hardened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Worse than their fathers who struggled for 40 years in the wilderness. Therefore thou shalt speak all these words unto them, but they will not hearken to thee. Thou shalt also call unto them, but they will not answer thee. But thou shalt say unto them, This is a nation that obeyeth not the voice of the Lord their God, nor receiveth correction. Truth is perished and is cut off from their mouth. Truth is perished. Isn't that just a... That's an ominous statement. Truth is perished. Remember that Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When people turn and run away from it, backwards, with an evil heart, an evil intent, an evil motivation, you're pulling away from the God who is the God of truth. And truth is then taken away, cut off from their mouth. Getting back to our text, verse 2 of our text literally says that the more the prophets called the people, the more they went from them and essentially from the Lord as they called them, so they went from them. It was the more they went from them. Verse three tells us that the Lord taught Ephraim, or Israel, to use his feet as a father would teach his son how to walk in the early stages of of the child's life. Those of you who are dads and maybe even moms that, you know, you helped your child walk. That's what it's describing. That stage of the child's life. That's what God did with His people. We're told in Deuteronomy one, and I'm going to give you about five or six references from Deuteronomy. I want you, and they're very close in in uh, uh, in position here uh, until the last one. The last one goes down. These are in Deuteronomy chapter 1, chapter 8, and then Deuteronomy chapter 32, but the first few are are together pretty close. Deuteronomy 1, verses 30 and 31 says, The Lord your God, which goeth before you, he shall fight for you. Isn't that what parents do also for their kids? He shall fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. I'm not telling you go out and fight, you know, like, at some baseball game or something, putting somebody's lights out. On. I'm not telling you to do that, please. Don't. But he fights for you. By the way, our God fights for us, and we have an intercessor before the Father. That's Jesus. Prays for us. And then we have the Holy Spirit, who goes with us. It's all one God, in three persons, and He's there for us. The Lord your God which goeth before you, he shall fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where thou hast seen how the Lord thy God bare thee as a man doth bear his son in all the way that that ye went until, until ye came unto this place. That's what God did. He bore them, carried them through the wilderness, even in their worst times. When they were murmuring and complaining, well, we want! Well, he brought us out here to die. We, we need water, and he gives them water. We well, brought us out here to die. We are going to starve to death. He gave them food, manna from heaven. Oh, this man is boring. You know, it's, 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 we, we want meat, and man, he gave them a lot of meat. Birds flying right into their mouths, actually. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. And thou shalt remember. By the way, remember, remember? Remember? We're to remember. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, notice, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. Deuteronomy 8, verse 5. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, in other words, as a man corrects his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth or correcteth thee. We'll come back to that in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 8, verse 15 says, Who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of Flint. That was God who did that for them in the wilderness. And then you go all the way down to Deuteronomy 32, verses 10 through 12. And it says, He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirreth up her nest fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, taketh them, beareth them on her wings. So the Lord alone did lead them, or did lead him. And there was no strange God with him. You know, when we are resting in the Lord, there's not going to be any strange gods around. When we're we're being born by God himself, lifted up and and taken care of by God, There's no room for strange gods. There's no room for for these idols and stuff. That's why it's important to stay in Christ, to stay in the Lord, because there's no room for anything else but Him. And that's the way it needs to be all the time. But then we come right back to this, as seen in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Another prophet that poured out his heart to these people, primarily in Judah, and they wouldn't listen. Isaiah 1, verses 2 and 3. Hear, O heavens, and give your ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. That would be a donkey. But Israel does not know My people doth not consider. They don't know who I am. Even though I've loved them. Even though I have provided for them. Even though I have been with them. I have led them. I have carried them. I have borne them on on my wings. Now getting back to our text, as we see in verse 4, the Lord drew them to him by his love. I drew them with cords of a man with bonds of love and I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws and I laid meat unto them. It is the love of God. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It is the love of God that constrains us. It is the love of God that compels us to move forward in our walk with him. Again, when, when, when we don't understand his love, what do we do? We go against it. And we begin to think that God doesn't love us or, you know, we hear too much of the devil speaking into our, into our head or, or a demon or whatever just telling us, hey, you know what, uh, God doesn't love you, man. Look at all of the ugly things you've been doing, the things you've been saying, the way you've been living, the way you mistreat everybody, the way you laugh at these jokes and that kind of stuff. God doesn't love you. He's never going to love you. And if he ever did, he's going to stop it. That's not the love of God, is it? That doesn't doesn't describe our God, does it? Does it? You know, it's amazing to hear the words of the Lord to a rebellious people. These are the words of God to a rebellious people. Jeremiah 31, verses 3 and 4 listen to what he says the Lord has appeared of old unto me saying yea I have loved thee with an everlasting love now the last time I checked everlasting is a long time like it lasts forever well that's what everlasting means eternal never ending ever lasting and therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee and the word loving kindness has a lot to do with his mercies too his mercies again I will build thee now this is not only the confidence of the Lord this is the promise of the Lord Again, I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O Virgin of Israel. Now if you look at the, the, the time frame of when, he, when the Lord is saying this, it is a time when they were truly rebellious people, and you would think, they're no virgin at all in the sense of their having rejected God and, and, and gone off in, in, in all kinds of disobedience. But this is how God sees us when we surrender to Him, and in particular when we surrender to the love of Christ and bow to what Christ has done for us on the cross and in conquering sin and coming out of the tomb conquering death. O Virgin of Israel, thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets and shall go forth in the dances of them that make merry. How would Israel respond how would Israel respond to God's everlasting love? In a word, they would respond with ingratitude. Ingratitude. Look at verses 5 through 7 now of Hosea 11. We're almost done. It says, He shall not return unto the land of Egypt, but the Assyrians shall be his king, because they refuse to return. And the sword shall abide in his cities. And shall consume his branches and devour them because of their own counsels. And my people are bent to backsliding from me. They're bent. They have this bent. You know, in other words, this is, this is what they, they are aiming at. Doing. Though they call them to the Most High, the prophets. Though the prophets call them to the Most High. Not at all, or none at all would exalt him. So the mention of not returning to Egypt has to do with the fact that Israel looked with dependence upon others. In this case, guess where? They looked with dependence upon Egypt. Now we talked about that. We talked about them wanting to go to the king of whose name was Saul. And, and, and they went to have a, an alliance with him. And of course, uh, uh, Shalmaneser of, of Assyria you know, finds out. And so, you know, you know that's... ...why they come down hard upon, upon Israel. And uh, because they knew that the alliance was going to be, to be against uh, the Assyrians. So they looked with dependence upon Egypt as if Egypt was going to save them and not God. So instead they would have an Assyrian king over them whom they would not desire. And since they didn't want God as their king, they would have the Assyrian as king. And because of their refusal to return to the Lord, the sword would rage against their cities, consuming and destroying. This is what their own counsels brought them. This is what their own way of thinking and putting together, you know, some kind of plan brought them. That's all it brought them. Instead of delivering them, their counsels were the cause of their destruction. And sadly, they were bent on backsliding from the Lord. And though they were called to the Most High from their idols, none would exalt Him. And yet, as we've learned tonight, God loves them with an everlasting love. And God's not done with Israel, by the way. In fact, He's got a plan. He's been working it out for the last 2,000 years, longer. But now, in two thousand years, because of Jesus, there is that plan. I want to close with Hebrews chapter twelve, if you will, turn there, and we'll close with this. Won't take much longer. Here, the apostle writes: "Wherefore, seeing we are, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses." Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And remember that this is a letter to Hebrew believers in Jesus Christ. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You've not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Something we read earlier. Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, he corrects, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. That doesn't happen a lot today because people are told, you know, you try to correct your children, somebody's going to call and, you know, the authorities and arrest you or something. But it goes on to say, Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he, when God chastens us, he chastens us for our profit, for our good, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. In other words, None of us like chastening. None of us like correction. How many of you remember the old statement from your mother? Wait till your dad gets home. Right? Ah. (laughs) Or you hide under the bed? I tried that once. I was too big. I couldn't fit. Anyway, doesn't work. Did not work that day. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, notice, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. There is the fruit of righteousness when we learn our lesson from a loving God. Israel will learn its lessons from a loving God. Not from a God who hates them, but from a God who loves them. Just as he teaches us and corrects us when we need it and helps us to grow more and more into the knowledge of Christ and into his image.